Hello and welcome to White Swan, the podcast that gives you the inside story on how leaders tackle crises. I'm Gavin McGaw, and on this podcast, we aim to furnish you with the learnings behind the headlines so that when the proverbial hits the fan, you can keep things turning. On this episode of White Swan, we're going to be joined by the Right Honourable David Davis MP. In my interview with David, we covered an awful lot, including his background, where he fits on the political spectrum, his approach to crises, and his views on how the COVID crisis has been handled in the UK. And these are genuinely fascinating, trust me. But before we listen to that, I'm going to be joined by Karen White of National in Canada and Gary Cleland of Hanover in the UK. Welcome, Karen and Gary. Hey, Gav. Hi, Gav. Now, I really enjoyed chatting to David. He's a very experienced and thoughtful politician who always has something interesting to say. And I am sure many will be surprised by what he says about his background, his views and his willingness also to share them. He has been at the centre of many a crises personally. And hearing him talk about that personal impact that a crisis can have on leaders and at times their families was stark to me. Karen, how do you keep business leaders going during those incredibly dark moments of a crisis? Yeah, I think one of the the points that really resonated for me that he made was, you know, the importance of that external perspective. And I think a lot of times as an external counsel, you know, we'll be balancing our counsel with legal when you think about risk. Um, but, you know, we can provide a perspective that takes some of the personal out of it. And in many cases, because of practitioners like us, we go from one crisis to the next. And so we kind of have an understanding of the playbook and how things are going to roll out. You know, another point that was made was, you know, this notion of a slow moving crisis. And in some cases, you know, I'll consider that a smoldering crisis. And it's really important that you're doing the monitoring and the sensing to understand that you actually have an issue to be managed. So you can actually help prevent a crisis by having a good team around you, that, you know, is able to understand that you are facing an issue that needs to be effectively managed. What are you, Gary? Yes, I agree. I think, you know, almost the best thing you can do for a business leader in the centre of a crisis is provide them with the confidence that there is a system in place that they can rely on. Uh, I think part of what a crisis team needs to do is ensure that the business leader doesn't try to take on everything 24-7 for a protracted period of time, because that's not going to be good for them, but it's also not going to be Uh, a very effective way of dealing with a crisis. I was also struck by David's uh, definition of slow-moving and fast-moving crises. And in my view, there aren't many fast-moving crises in the sense that there are very few things that happen to your organisation for which it's possible to be completely unprepared. Either I think there are issues that you can identify in advance as a potential risk, even if you don't have specific knowledge of when they might happen. Or second, there are issues that you genuinely didn't see coming but for which your response will still benefit from having those tried and tested protocols and structures, the coherent thought process throughout the organization that David references. I also agree with what he talks about when he talks about the value of instinct. Um, and, I, and I think to me, instinct is a bit like luck. And, and you know the Gary Player quotes about luck referencing golf when he talks about the more I practice, the luckier I get. I think your instinctual reaction to a crisis is going to be better with experience and with practice. And while your business doesn't necessarily want to create crises in order to get that experience, there are other ways to test your organizational response. Uh, And it's imperative in organizations to build this into how they prepare and how they operate. 
it's interesting, isn't it? I've worked in politics, sport and business, and it's not easy to be at the heart of a crisis in any of those. I promise you that. But what I would say is that news cycles for a political crisis do tend to last longer and do tend to be a lot more personal. They can be absolutely brutal affairs. And I think politicians, as Davis sort of set out, do respond to things more instinctively. So they don't have that support mechanism you guys have discussed being around them. I recall one political leader, for instance, when I was working early in my career, who was facing very bad news day. Uh, and he tried to take his kids out for a walk and there was helicopters up in the air trying to get shots of him just out for a walk with the kids. And it's very hard for them to deal with that, no matter how strong they are. So it's difficult. But I think, as David said, out, you can get through it if you've got the right processes and thoughts, uh, mechanisms in place. Right. We'll chat further once we've heard from David. Each episode of White Swan features an in-depth conversation with a senior business leader, so we get to learn about their crisis experiences and the lessons you need to hear. But this one's a bit different. I'm delighted to be joined by the Right Honourable David Davis, who has been a Member of Parliament in the UK since 1987. David has had a stellar political career, performing senior roles within the UK Cabinet and Shadow Cabinet. His background, though, might surprise many of you. David grew up on a tough housing estate in South London and attended a local grammar school. After failing his A-levels, he worked as an insurance clerk and joined the Territorial Army's SAS Regiment in order to pay to retake his exams. At university, he studied science and computer science at Warwick before earning a master's in business at London Business School and joining Tate and Lyle, where he worked for 17 years. He later wrote a book on his time in business called How to Turn Around a Company. David, thank you for joining me on White Swan. My pleasure. It sounds like I've come down the pub with White Swan. <laughs> <laughs> if only, maybe we should do that. That's what we should do in the future, the White Swan podcast from a White Swan pub. That would really make it work. Now, David, many people I know make the assumption that all politicians went to Eton and Oxford or Cambridge. You certainly didn't. I recall the time when we visited the estate on which you grew up in South London, and you spent most of the visit pointing out which street corners you got up the mischief on. Are people surprised by your background? Well, they are less so these days. I mean, it, it, that was more true really when we worked together um, uh, because we were a party that had been led by Auditonians more often than not in the previous century, and we still are now. You know. But it's become a piece of the political wallpaper now that my background, working class background, single mum, all of that sort of stuff. And of course, it's what journalists love to write about. So, you know, they're, they're always dying for some infill. Uh, and for me, the, uh, writing about me, that's easy infill to write about. So it's less the case now. And indeed, the other way around, when, when um, in the last election, for example, when we were fighting the so-called red wall seats, and I went to 17 of them, all of which we won, I, I was inevitably sent to the council estate. That's where I went. You know, other people were going to the middle class bits. I got the council estate every single time. Uh, so there we, are. there we are. You're also not a man who is simple to pin down in terms of your politics. People suggest that you're just another Tory right winger, but some of your closest political friends and allies have been from other political parties. The late Tony Benn jumps out uh, for instance, to me. And you resigned your parliamentary seat in 2008 to protest against the erosion of civil liberties. How would you explain where your politics fits on the political spectrum? It's very interesting because, of course, Tony Benn actually came and launched my by-election, which was quite normal, really. Um, and he told me at the time that when he had a by-election, in order to 
because uh, he because he became a lord, you see, and he wanted to uh, stay a, a, a member of the House of Commons, and he had a by-election to that end, and he had eventually was allowed to resign his his peerage. But uh, when he did that, Winston Churchill wrote a letter of support to him. So you know these things sometimes work. Although it, to be fair, uh, truth be told, there are not many cross-party friendships. There are one or two, but there are not many. Uh, the truth is, you know, politics divides. You know, heavens above, you know. Given where you come from, <laughs> you should know that politics divides whole communities sometimes. But it, where, where do I fit? It's a quite difficult question to answer. I mean, it's a sort of historical thing. If you really wanted to characterize me, you'd probably call me a classical liberal. Now, there's no such thing today. You know, I'm a believer in free trade. I'm a believer in the rule of law. I'm a believer in justice, first and foremost. You know, um, I would have been an anti-slavery campaigner if I'd been here when Wilberforce represented my seat. You know, I mean, those that's a sort of range of things. And And it sort of comes from a sense of the history of our country, by which I mean the United Kingdom, the four nations, because we could arguably be said to be to, to be the the greatest country in the history of the world in many respects you know why when we are such a tiny country are we the fifth biggest in the world you know why were we the first for the industrial revolution why were we the first great democracy of modern times they all arise out of a very similar set of things which is the rule of law it's individual freedom it's property rights it's the balance of power between the individual and the state and you know that isn't characterized in any single political party um, but that's that's what makes me well m- makes what I stand for um, I- into a into a coherent whole. People look at it; they can't make up their mind because there's a piece of it that looks like it's left wing, another piece that looks like it's very right wing, and they can't. And you know, political journalism is about simplification, and it's very very hard to simplify quite the tangled mess that my politics really is. Right. Well, let's leave that uh, tangled web to one side. We're here today to talk about crises, David. You've worked in senior roles in politics and business, which not a lot of people in politics have. They haven't They haven't actually worked on the business side as much as maybe they used to many moons ago. You've also had a military uh, career. Um, do you think those experiences have helped you when facing crises? And which one would you say has been more helpful? A bit. I mean, uh, well, yes, I mean, more than a bit. Just by sheer luck. The business career, I worked for a company called Tate, well, it's still around, Tate and Lyle. Very big. It was a FTSE 100 company of the day, um, very sizable one. And within about two years of joining it, by an accident, really, I became their troubleshooter. I mean, they, they maybe spotted I did well in minor crises, whatever, but I became their troubleshooter. Now, the sort of troubleshooting I did, most of it, probably 80% of it was what I would call slow motion crises. And they're very, very different from fast crises, the sort of thing your business has to deal with. But a slow motion crisis, a company suddenly starts losing money. So one of our subsidiaries suddenly starts losing money. Now there, I could spend a few weeks learning the technology. I mean, my background means I can pick up most technologies in a couple of weeks or so. Uh, I would know about the market. I'd find out about all the the sort of key issues before I went in and hit it. So it was, if you like, it was a sort of ladybird beginner's crisis. (laughs) You know, each time I could sort of plan it out and be very across the information because dealing with crises always fast and slow is uh, a sort of stay, it, it goes as, gather information, gain insight, take action. And that, that, they all fit that rather simple uh, analysis. The, the gathering information is sometimes the hardest. And if you've got time to do it, that's an enormous luxury. So 
So although I was doing a lot of crisis work, it was quite orderly crises. Not all of it, about 20% of it wasn't. And that's when the crisis lands on you. You know, um, a major competitor arrives um, uh, that's going to take over your biggest opponent and then crush you. That's a, and that, you know, happening in hours and days, that sort of stuff. And that did happen with an attempted uh, Italian company takeover of British Sugar, which we thwarted. So, so I actually had a sort of, as it were, ladybird guide to crises earlier on in my business career, which meant I built up a load of rules and instincts and approaches which uh, I could use in the more difficult, faster crises. So I was sort of lucky from that point of view. The army, no, nah, not really. I mean, look, there are two things out of the army that I guess would be a lesson. One was one was just knowing how resilient you can be if you have to be. You know, how long you can last, you know, how many hours I can keep going <laughs> without giving up, um, how much pain I can stand, all, all those sorts of things. And of course, there were the odd small crisis. But in the military, the crisis often lasts 30 seconds. You know, your parachute collapses and you drop 100 foot to the floor. Not much, not much thinking in that. But in as much as there was a sort of intellectual element to it, I guess the most important thing was when we were planning an exercise, an operation of some sort, and we'd, we'd get the plan worked out. And then we'd sit down and we'd have what we call, used to call a think evil session. And we'd, you know, what can go wrong here? What can go? And everybody would pitch in. And, you know, and what can go wrong here? And you think of six ways that the, the operation could go wrong. And, of course, there would be a seventh way, which would be the actual way it went wrong. But the process of doing the six ways meant you all knew what each other was thinking about the thing. So when it went wrong, you could act almost coherently or a coordinated manner without talking to each other because you knew each other's minds and that's quite important in organizational crises you know you know where you're going you know what your natural reaction would be or your natural reflex would be that i guess was was a contributor it meant that when when we were planning for the sort of known unknowns the known crises we could do two things we could actually develop them our response to them very well but also we could develop a sort of coherent thought process amongst our organization, whether it's a board or a management team or whatever, that we all knew what we stood for, where we were going, what the aim was, and what we each would instinctively do if it went wrong. So there were, there were two, sets of, two sets of benefits, and they, they each sort of contributed. I mean, crisis management, as you know, that's what your company does uh, to a very large extent. Crisis management is a mixture of knowledge, plans right through to instinct and you've got to have all of them there's no you know you can't you can't just do one or the other you've got to have the whole suite yeah it's really interesting though because when you look at politics most people will assume most of the responses are based on instinct rather than a sort of intelligent thoughtful oversight of what the issue is and working through the analysis of that uh, and then building instinct in it really is a blend that works best but do you think that politicians naturally are more instinctive about crises? And is that a mistake? It depends on the nature of the crisis. But yes, mostly. Mostly they are... I mean, our current prime minister is an uh, an absolute demonstration of somebody who works mostly by instinct. You know, he doesn't sit down and analyse things in great detail. But let me give you the sort of counterexample. The longest running political crisis I ever had to deal with was the Maastricht bill taken through the House of Commons, right? And I was the whip on that. And I was the whip on that Precisely because I was the crisis whip, really. I mean, the previous year or so, uh, whenever there was a, a tactical problem, it was me that got landed with dealing with it. So 
for those reasons, I ended up taking the Maastricht bill through. And I didn't really believe in the Maastricht bill, frankly. I thought it was a doubtful piece of legislation. But if it had fallen, the government would have fallen. That's the thing to understand. The government would have fallen. Then we would have had something worse than the Maastricht bill. We'd have had the, the John Smith stroke Neil Kinnock equivalent of the Maastricht bill. And so I had to sort of keep that going and keep the government online. And that was a high pressure, 20 hour a day, hmm, nine month long crisis. Uh, and every day brought its own problems. And what we had to do was to just be cleverer than the people who are trying to bring, bring the government down. And that involved all sorts of things which people didn't normally think of, like coalitions with the uh, Lib Dems, Plaid Cymru, Scott Nats, you know, you name it, you know. Uh, it, it involved tactical skills, uh, which, of course, fortunately, I'd learned before. So you know, in terms of running the House of Commons, um, it involved a whole series of things. And it was very, very analytical, although it was also a test, you know, a, a, a sort of physical test. And a number of times we sort of got knocked down. I mean, we, 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 ne- we never lost a vote while I was while I was in charge of it. But but, you know, we had setbacks. Uh, and one of the other things, one of my favourite comments really and I'm not sure who it's attributed to in the sort of the sort of civil warfare of that the politics normally is sometimes uncivil warfare that politics normally is is there's no shame in being knocked down the shame is in not getting up again and very often in long crises it's sheer stamina that gets you through and part of that stamina is is a mixture of of sort of uh, physical stamina and courage uh, and part of it's a realization that the, the the latest problem is not world ending, and if you come out the other side, you know, and you're still standing, uh, you know, uh, you'll be able to make things better or improve things. Uh, and that was certainly true in the Maastricht Treaty. And that was, as I say, that was a mixture. And of course, instinct played a part, but that was a mixture. The other problem in terms of instinct is, particularly when the crises are very personal. When some individuals at the centre of the crisis, a chief executive, maybe, or, or, or whoever, you know, or the prime minister or whoever is in it, or, or a minister who's in trouble with some scandal or whatever. You know, we all talk about fight and flight responses, you know, the sort of the adrenaline reaction. What people forget is that there are three reactions. There's fight, there's flight and there's freeze. There's freeze. And the commonest reaction of people who've not been through it is to freeze um, because they don't know what to do. They've never seen it before. They've never, you see it. With, I, I won't put any names to this because it might be taken as, as unfair. But there are people who are like cabinet ministers who've had golden careers now, all the way up to, you know, from, the, from being a special advisor in central office through a ministerial job almost as soon as they get to the House of Commons and then to get in their cabinet, and then something goes wrong. And those are the people who are most likely to freeze because they've never had the problem before. Now, at that point, uh, their instincts are useless. They're completely useless. One of the uh, freezing is like an intense depression. And uh, one of the characteristics of, of depression is rumination going over the same thing time and time and time again in your mind that's, and keeps you depressed, right? When somebody's in a crisis and they've never seen it before and they've frozen, that's what they do, which is why outsiders are very important 
um, somebody else coming in and taking over the sort of job you guys do is very important saying no that's not actually very important that's important that isn't we can change this we can't change that and actually sort of picking out those things that's the analytical element right now you need to know the subject as i said said before it's you know information insight action you need to be able to do that and when you're frozen you're stuck in the pre-information stage yeah um so the psychology is very important and you know, I, I hear people say, you know, oh, I'm I'm tough and I'm calm. You know, if the trouble's big enough, <laughs> you need somebody else. It's fascinating, David, because I see that a lot. And having the background that I've had working in politics and, and other areas, you sort of you learn the game very, very quickly. And even just getting leaders to ask what's our objective in our crisis response usually helps snap them out and focus them. But I was just going to ask you, politics is way more personal than business. Is that fair to say? Because certainly my experience of it was, and I think people don't quite realize how hard politics are or is when you're in a crisis situation. It's 24-7. It's unlike business. That's right. That's right. It's very personal. Uh, it can be very hurtful. It can hurt your family too. You know, things may be said about you and your wife's got to watch it on the news or your children have got to watch it on the news, you know, uh, and, and then your children hear about it in the playground, you know, I mean, uh, or your grandchildren. do. I mean, that's the sort of, thing you've got to bear in mind of the, the sort of super pressure of this, which, I mean, it does happen in business. I mean, it happened with BP, I think, um, uh, on one occasion, the head of BP and, and, and others, you know, when somebody becomes a sort of bête noire for the country for a while. And, and wrongly, you know, just, just because they're the person there at the time something has gone wrong, a big oil spill or whatever it may be. They didn't personally create the problem, but they, they become the, the lightning rod for it. And it's, and it's quite tough, but that's normal in politics. It's normal. When you work with me, I mean, I think we, it was about the time we removed from office uh, some government ministers, but I tried very, very hard not to make it personal, actually to depersonalise it. And indeed, I mean, two of them were David Blunkett and Charles Clark, and both of them took me out to dinner <laughs> after I'd removed them because they understood it wasn't personal. It, it, was, it was an exercise that had to be done. Uh, but I deliberately depersonalized it. But most politics is not like that. Most politics is ferociously personal. And therefore, it, it's it's like a business crisis, but squared, you know, it's more intense. Yeah. I mean, it's really interesting you say that because you do, and people listening won't know this, but I know it. When people are in trouble, whether they're having a personal crisis, being played out in the media or facing a political crisis, you're often the first person to pick up the phone to them and give them some friendly advice or to offer them somewhere to come for a chat. Why do you do that? Is that part of your just value set? Yeah, it is really. Um, well, I know it hurts for a start, you know, um, and I'm, I'm not uh, I'm not a particularly religious man, but, you know, I was brought up uh, Sunday school and all the rest of it, you know. And for me, one of the most important parables was the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, so there's a bit of it just bur- burned into me, I think. I mean, it's just hardwired. Uh, but also the other truth is they come to me too. People think I can give useful advice. And so it works both way around. Uh, and and if 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 you do something and it's successful, you know, you rescue somebody from what appeared to be an insuperable disaster, then you tend to do it again. I mean, that, frankly, it, that's not a, that's not a virtue. That's a vanity. <laughs> so, and I suffer that vanity. I'm I, I, I'll only say it once on this program, but I'm quite good at that. 
<laughs> you, you are. You are. No, look, you're, you're not shy of helping people out, but you're also not shy of saying it like it is. Uh, and that means sometimes criticizing your own party. Um, we've just, we're still going through coronavirus and the crises of that and the majorly sustained crises of coronavirus, which is a shock to everyone. We're over a year now in lockdown. Um, how do you think Boris Johnson's done? Has he got it right over the last year? Have we got a couple of hours? Um, <laughs> let's start with the good. The good is, uh, and this is a very good demonstration for crises, actually. The good is that he's got one thing spectacularly right. He, the government, has got one thing spectacularly right. And actually, more accurately, a single person, Kate Bingham, has got one thing spectacularly right. because, And that's the vaccine. And that was just two decisions. You know, and I'm going to go through it because it's quite important. In, in crisis management, this happens more often than you know, than you think. She made two decisions. One was to accelerate the regulatory approach. Now, normally, doctors and scientists would recoil at the idea of compressing the safety checks, as it were, on something. But here we were, every day of delay. And let's imagine you have a, um, a, a well, our crisis, our, our, sorry, our vaccination program runs about half a million a day thereabouts, plus or minus. Uh, to give you the numbers, every day you delayed such a program, 75 people would die. That would be more, in absolute terms, 75 more deaths. That's what, that's what the numbers are. So she looked at this and thought, actually, the balance of risk is to comp compress the safety timetable. We know it delivered some political problems later with Mr. Macron and others, but nevertheless, it was the right logical thing to do. And it put us two months ahead of the Europeans, really. And you do your numbers, 60 times 75. You know, it's a lot of, a lot of people's lives saved. So she did that. Second thing she did, um, and again, this is information insight action, remember. She looked at the question of contracts and said to herself, I think I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself in her mind. I don't know what she actually said to her, but, but what I assume she said to herself was, you know, if I have 200% of what I need, then I can use the 100% for other people. You know, send it to, to poorer countries or give it to the Europeans if they deserve it. <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> um, you know, I can, do, I, can, I can be a good neighbour, you know, with the extra. Uh, and actually the cost of, of order, ordering twice as much is... Is less than a rounding error of one day of the economic cost of this crisis. So she saw those two things, accelerate the regulatory process and order more than you need, because some of them will let you down. I mean, you're guaranteed in a, in a, in a new program, some, some will let you down. And some did, but we still ended up with probably 150% of what we needed in theory. Now, those two thought processes gave us the huge vaccine success, second best in the world. The only country doing better than us is Israel. And Israel is a much smaller, more compact country, positively military country in many ways. So, so you know, it's got lots of virtues and, uh, and it pulled, pulled them all to the play. Um, so second best in the world. And that, at the end of the day, rescued our strategy. Because the rest of the strategy was hopeless, right? And you, and, you, and you can't just put it down to Boris or even you can't just put it down to this government. It started 10 years ago. Remember what I was saying before about the Think Evil session, about you know, your, your pre-planning session. And the whole point about that is it's discursive. You challenge everything. You challenge the fundamental arguments and so on. Well, what happened? Well, I happen to know, as it, as it turns out, it's actually documented. Because while I was in Cabinet, we had the review 
Jeremy Hunt delivered a review of a thing called Operation Cygnus. Very appropriate. It's a swan, like your white swan, right? Okay, Operation Cygnus. Um, and uh, Operation Cygnus was preparation for a pandemic. Right? It was what they call a command post exercise. Nobody actually goes out and does anything. They just give orders and paper moves around, you know. But, you know, it's around the whole country. So there was a COBRA meeting in Whitehall and there was a... Uh, you know, there'll be around here, there'll be a local government equivalent receiving orders and they would go through the, the routines. And it was a complete unmitigated disaster. It wasn't seen as an unmitigated disaster. It was thought to be a huge success. And indeed, we were ranked first, along with Americans, first and second in the world for our preparedness, except we weren't. You know why? Because they were preparing to cope, not preparing to solve. So the sorts of mm. solutions that came out of it were... Well, we're going to have 450,000 dead. We need more body bags. We need to make preparation for having um, a mortuary in Hyde Park, etc. That was the sort of outcome. They were preparing to cope. Whereas what they should have been saying is, how the hell do we stop 450,000? And they didn't really address that issue, you know. Um, so that's where it started. The, the disaster started before the actual crisis, right? And And... When it came up in, in Cabinet, this, this thing, and we had literally 15 minutes to talk about it, right? A pandemic, 15 minutes to talk about it. Um, I went through, basically, really, the only, only two people spoke for any length of time. One was Jeremy presenting it, and the other one was me. And I said, Prime Minister, Theresa May, let me say straight away that this is the biggest problem that will face mankind. It would be much faster than global warming, and it could be just as lethal, right? Uh, and we ought to have a whole cabinet meeting on it, not just a minute, maybe a whole day, not just 15 minutes on it. Uh, and she agreed, actually. It never happened because I resigned a couple of months later. But, but you know, it, 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 um, it, you know, it should have happened. And I highlighted some of the weaknesses. So, so we had this uh, catastrophe before we had the crisis that they just planned badly. They'd done the wrong thing. And, and that was then reflected in the crisis itself. Public Health England were a disastrous failure. Their top-of-the-line uh, priority was notionally pandemic planning. If you go on their website at the time, you'd find that internally their top-of-the-line was health inequalities. Well, they're both important, but pandemic planning, you get it wrong, over 100,000 people die, you know. Um, so uh, so, so the, the, the first off, there was a confused priorities. Something that happens in many crisis companies, I know as well. The priorities get confused and something goes wrong. Um, then the reaction uh, and the preparation was poor. The PPE, which, you know, when they did Operation Cygnus, they should have sent somebody to go and check whether the PPE was up to date, whether, we, whether it was actually there in the warehouse. Nobody did that, you know. Uh, vaccination capability. I mean, I happen to know about vaccination capability because it was one of my preparations for Brexit. And I knew it was too low, and I said we should actually improve it. So, so those sorts of things weren't done. And then a lot, of this, a lot of individual mistakes were made. I think the structure is poor. I think the SAGE structure, that's the scientific committee, is badly organised. Uh, you know, it's a sort of 20 or 30 people uh, who turn up. It's not very well organised in terms of the way it works. Individuals can dominate it too easily, uh, and they did early on with the wrong ideas. Uh, and also, we didn't, we didn't do enough of the simple, humble thing of looking at who else is better at, that, at this than we are. 
you know, that, that in, a, in many ways, many crises, the first question is, has anybody else had this problem before? How did, how did they cope with it? You know, and so, for example, we could have looked at South Korea or Taiwan or Singapore or even Hong Kong and said, what did they do after SARS and MERS? Because they'd all had this crisis before and they dealt with it better this yeah. time around. And we didn't do that either. So it was a total, well, I'm inclined to swear, it's a total screw-up, let's put it as, as mildly as the early part of it. Now, interestingly, of course, the public don't blame the government for that because they know this isn't, you know, what they thought was an unimaginable problem. It wasn't unimaginable. We had a meeting in a church room in the Commons about pandemics and the linked subject of antibiotic-resistant bugs. Yeah, they 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 thought they're two halves of the same coin. If you know, if you haven't got if you haven't got an antibiotic or antiviral answer, then you're going to have a pandemic one day. And we had about 150 really really good people turn up, you know, scientists and and, and medics and so on, and less than half a dozen MPs. This is six months before the pandemic started. Now we'd have 300 MPs turn up, you know, but when they're allowed. But you know, but that so these things are predictable, but nobody gave them the impetus that was needed. You know, now I think that today on the day of our interview, um, I think I see that we're going to have a whole sort of department for planning pandemics. You know, look at the change. You know, because people suddenly understand it was always obvious that this was going to happen at some point. Just as obvious for an airline that one of their airliners will crash one day or, you know, or yeah, you go through all sorts of industries where you might have accidents and disasters and so on. Uh, and or you're going to have an oil spill one day, those sorts of things. You know. But but holding people to account for learning those lessons is now key, isn't it? And making sure we don't rein back on them. Um, I mean, is there, have, is there a, has there been a point during this pandemic that you've thought, oh, I'd like to be back in the cabinet? Or have you thought, I'm glad I'm not there? Neither, really. I mean, look, um, I'm a I'm a funny character in the sense that I am perfectly happy on the front bench and the back bench. It, it, I won't say it makes no difference to me, but I can do both. Uh, and each one gives you different things. I mean, on the back benches, uh, frankly, I can be more powerful than most cabinet ministers when I choose to be um, on a wider range of subjects. However, if you're inside, of course, you can influence issues more quickly and more directly by order rather than by influence, as it were. And like everybody, I, I'm, I'm sure there's not a person in the world at some point or other didn't think they could do it better. <laughs> you know, that, but that, but that's normal in politics. And of course, I'm a scientist, you know, and I understand, uh, you know, uh, how epidemiology works. And I mean, I occasionally in it, I have intervened. I mean, I intervened with Boris a couple of times. Both times he took my advice. I'm glad to say. But the, but I've also taken on some of the scientists. I mean. The original forecast, you may not remember, but the, the big Imperial College forecast of how many deaths there would be if we did this and that and the other were done on the basis of truly bad modelling. You know, it's truly. And I took on the, the, that in on the pages of the Sunday Telegraph, took the scientists on and none of them came back. You know? um, so you can you can do those things as well. You know? So um, look, as you well know, I'm in a very lucky place. If I say something loudly people pay attention i mean i went, i just attended the select committee yesterday and said in my view the uh, proposal for vaccine passports will be illegal and bingo it's in all the papers today so you know i mean i'm i'm, I'm in a privileged position i'm not i'm not in the position of an ordinary backbencher now i so i have more influence anyway and if i really want to i can pick up the phone to boris and say this isn't right 
So let, let me get personal now. Though when you're in the middle of the crisis, David, when it's all playing out, when the pressures are there, when it does feel personal and the attacks against you, how do you take a moment away? What do you do? So in those dark days of Brexit negotiations, when the media weren't giving you the benefit of the doubt, how did you take a moment away from the heat? I don't really. Is, is that healthy, though? Do you think you should? Uh, well, look, the, 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 there's a practical problem here. Uh, and the practical problem is that in the middle of a crisis, the one thing you are short of is time. So if you took a week off, you know, uh, that week could be the critical week in which you thought out all the analysis that should be done. Um, uh, so I tend not to. I tend to try and keep fit. Sometimes quite difficult when you're a minister because you're driven everywhere and so on. And my primary way of keeping fit is walking both very long distances, you know, 200 miles across the country, or even just a daily couple of miles to and from uh, to and from work. And you can't really do either of those things. But um, uh, so you do, you've got to keep fit. But ideally, yes, of course, you should take a you know, day off a week and, and get some rest. But the truth is, when you're in the middle of a fight, you know, you need every every minute there is in a day. And and the, the answer to the question, I mean, the other thing is, of course, I don't really notice the slings and arrows. I don't read Twitter. I broadcast on Twitter, but I never read it. I've got um, 175,000 followers, but I don't, I don't read them. Um, I mean, because, you know, you just get trolled and you get annoyed. And what's the point? You know, I broadly don't read the newspapers. I leave it to others to read them and tell me, oh, they're giving you a kicking today in the Daily Mirror or whatever it might be. Because it's, it's this question of maintaining your psychological equilibrium in order to do the inform, information, insight, action, triptet. And so, for example, in the middle of the battle over Brexit, sort of mid-late Brexit, if you like, the primary problem was, as always, the press is focusing on the tactics, but the problem was the strategy. And the strategy was being dictated by number 10. Uh, and my advice was simply not being taken. From, I think it was December 2017, uh, when Theresa May gave in to the demand that Northern Ireland should be staying in alignment with Southern Ireland. You will understand this. Your, your viewers may not be uh, across it. But basically, the European Union and the Irish Republic together insisted that the regulatory standards in the north should be the same as for the south, which then creates a problem between Northern Ireland and the rest of the country, the rest of the UK. And she gave in on that uh, without telling me, actually, and then told me afterwards. And at that point, I thought, this is going to go horribly wrong. And the, the most difficult time, the time you're thinking of was when the press were being hard, was between that December and the subsequent July. And in that time, it was really impossible to deliver tactics which would deliver the strategy she's trying to follow. And so I thought out, well, this strategy is wrong. So I got agreement that from her, I'd been trying for a while, but I eventually forced an agreement from her that I would write a white paper to lay out a proper strategy, uh, which I did in the next few months. And uh, unbeknownst to me, she wrote a parallel strategy. So when it came to July and she said, I want to do this. And I said, no, this is what we should do. She said, well, I'm going to do this. And I said, well, give me the written version. What I always did with, with Theresa was say, give me the written version and I go away and see if I can rewrite it to make it work. Um, and she did. I mean, most of the time she did. To be fair to her, for two years we worked together, nine out of ten times she did. Uh, but not this time. 
Uh, so on the Wednesday when she said uh, that she wasn't going to move, I knew at that point that I had to do something different. Now, I thought about it. I thought I, there was no way staying inside the government I could change this. But I knew that the act of leaving would change it. Now, regrettably, I thought it was 80-90% probable that if I left, she'd be gone a year later. Um, and then somebody else would come along and do it properly. And I'd have a say on who that somebody else was. And right. so that was the strategic move. The, the resignation was a strategic move to drive a change in strategy, which we all got today. And uh, if nothing else, you know, the fact that Brexit happened and happened properly, not keeping us inside the medicines agency, for example, means there are hundreds, if not thousands of people alive today because they've been vaccinated who wouldn't have been otherwise. So, you know, uh, you, and you just have to think, I mean, obviously I didn't think forward to coronavirus, but I thought forward to what's necessary to cause a break point in history, which is what it was. Um, uh, and that was the thought process. And it was very cold-blooded. I mean, I took a long time over it. I could always see a few weeks ahead in this exercise. And by the time I got to July, I could see a year ahead. And and that's what was necessary. But it's, but it's a very good demonstration, actually. Not what I'd like to pick for myself, but a very good demonstration of how Sometimes you have to make a strategic break point in what is a tactical, uh, uh, never-ending loop. Yes, to, to move things forward, absolutely. So, David, what's next for you? You're always busy. You're busy creating crises for other people at the minute. Um, what, what's what, what's next? <laughs> You're thinking of Nicholas Sturgeon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, well, the variety of things. I mean, there's, there's post-pandemic. I'm going to be pressurizing the government to have a, a, a quick review of the strategy as well as a slow review. I mean, one of the things I'm going to be arguing in the next few weeks is we should we should actually start the review in October, which is long before the government wants to do it, uh, and give them two targets, a one-year pandemic preparedness target and then a longer one, a strategic target. And um, so I'd be doing that. There are a whole load of things to do on the government's rather authoritarian agenda. One of the side effects in... Uh, of coronavirus is that Parliament's been essentially crippled. Let me give you an example. When David Cameron was uh, Prime Minister, he wanted to bomb Syria at one point. It was the earliest days when they thought they'd used uh, chemical agents. We still to this day don't know who, who actually did it, but uh, they thought they did. It was probably the Syrian government, but we can't be sure. And he wanted to bomb Syria. Now, with no sort of clear strategies, just bomb them, full stop. And I thought, well, all this can do is kill 300 conscripts, right? So uh, the story is too long to tell here, but basically uh, I ran a rebellion which involved 50 Tory MPs, uh, including nearly every person on the Tory benches who had served in the military uh, against this attack. And on the day I made a speech, there were, there were a series of four speeches from an odd group of people, um, including Julian Lewis, was Defence uh, Select Committee Chairman, uh, George Galloway, uh, me, you know, and the, together they made a really, really powerful argument, you know, um, uh, basically uh, 40 minutes of, of serious argument, which obviously moved the House, because the House was packed. And so we won by... I think we probably moved 10 or 20 people and we won by 15 votes. You know, uh, you can't do that today. The house is empty, so you can't lift the mood. You can't, uh, you know, people are watching 
on television like this while doing their mail or, or having a cup of tea yeah. or whatever, you know, it's not the same. Uh, and so what's happening in that time is that Parliament is doing things like, or the government more accurately, is passing laws like the Overseas Offences Bill, which is madly misconceived, uh, like a thing called the CHIS Bill, Covert Human Intelligence Service um, uh, Sources Bill, bills that are actually really, really badly intruding on the rights of British citizens. And so there's quite a lot to do on that front. Um, uh, there's more on the pandemic stuff. There's the science strategy. I put a lot into the government science strategy, which is about improving science teaching, improving the number of people doing science courses, improving our research capability, attracting people from around the world here. I want to give you an example. Um, and I went to see Boris and talked about this for half an hour uh, of, of, of presentation on it. And one of, the, one of the ideas that attracted him was, well, have you ever read Longitude, the book? It's about how the state gave a prize uh, for the first person to build a chronometer, a very, very accurate clock, which would allow the Royal Navy to know exactly what its longitude was, because you do it by measuring the height of the sun and the time. And it gave us a competitive advantage for hmm, thick end of 50 years uh, uh, in the world, right? That was done because the state offered prizes worth a million pounds in today's money. So I said, why don't we every year give out a dozen million pound prizes to research done in Britain? So, you know, bigger than Nobel Prize, but done in Britain. So you have a Lovelace Prize, you have a Faraday Prize, you know, you, 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 a Newton Prize. You go through them, yeah? Um, an Alexander Fleming Prize, you know, for different subjects. And you know, what would that do? It would give us a massive unfair advantage. Now, I love unfair advantages. <laughs> you know, because you know, English is the language of science. It's the language of engineering. It's the language of software. It's the language of mathematics. All the papers written in these subjects are written in English, right? And so we've already got an unfair advantage. But what this would do is get people to come from Australia, America, India, whatever, to Britain in the hope of winning the Lovelace Prize or the, the, the Newton Prize or whatever. So a whole series of ideas. That's just one of them. There's, dozen, there's a dozen of them uh, I'm promoting to turn the science superpower phrase from a soundbite into a reality. Well, David, that is a fantastic uh, note to end on. Uh, you certainly are busy, and I'm sure you will continue to be. Thank you for chatting uh, to us today and taking the time to do so. I know our listeners will find your insights fascinating and enjoyable. Uh, you've lifted the curtain for many of them, and I doubt they're going to watch the 10 o'clock news tonight uh, in the same way that they were before after the things that you've revealed. So thank you, the Right Honourable David Davis. My pleasure. Now, David, is always fun to chat to, and I hope you've learned something new from that chat. I certainly enjoyed uh, listening back to it. Uh, I'm joined again by Karen White of National and Canada and Gary Cleland of Hanover in the UK to talk about what we just heard. Welcome back, both. Hello. Now, there was loads of interesting things in that. We could talk all day, I'm sure, about it. But the moment that stood out for me was when David said that the UK had prepared to cope with the pandemic in a desktop simulation exercise rather than seeking to stop the pandemic. Gary, do you see businesses make similar mistakes in their crisis response testing processes? I think so. I think what it comes down to, and we speak about this a lot with clients, is they need to understand in your planning what is your objective, uh, either organizationally or from a communications perspective. I think it's 
fascinating when David talked about planning to cope and not planning to solve, because this does seem like an example of rallying your preparation around uh, a wrong-headed objective. And I think the pandemic is a situation that highlights what we talked about at the, the outset of this podcast, which is an event that you can't necessarily understand when it's coming, but it's not the case to say that it's completely unexpected. And it does sound like more time should have been taken to understand in those initial meetings, what exactly is the objective that we're trying to solve, both in terms of our operational response and then the communications that flow off the back of that. I think the other thing that came through was, as we've talked about many times, the need for those clear processes uh, and information. And I was very struck by what David talked about in terms of looking at where a crisis has happened before and what learning what works where you can learn lessons either from within your organ, own organization uh, or elsewhere and I think you know it's difficult to comment on the specifics of a response situation that you know David had a closer view than we did but I think there's clear lessons for everyone uh, and a lot of sense of what David talks about when he goes back to those mantras of information insight and action. Yeah Karen what about you? Yeah, I think, you know, you really can't overstate the importance of preparedness. And, you know, in many cases, we're building scenario-based crisis plans. And when you think about those worst case scenarios that you're planning for, you're looking at the likelihood or probability it's going to happen and the level of risk. And so I think in the pandemic, it was like the absolute worst of the worst case scenario. And so in many cases, when you're exercising your plan, you know, when we try to identify scenarios, and in many cases, we try to consider like, okay, what are the most likelihood or most likely kinds of incidents that are going to happen? And let's exercise those. Uh, I can tell you, you know, even with cybersecurity, for example, that's on the rise. I've done two crisis simulations in the past month focused on cybersecurity. We recognize that it's an, an incident that is more likely to occur. It's happening more and more. And so we chose to prioritize and to exercise that through a virtual simulation. And the virtual simulation actually provided a really great opportunity for greater participation within the organization, as well as, as observation. And so I think it's critically important that organizations are continuing to review their crisis plans, that they're exercising those crisis scenarios. And what the pandemic taught me is even exercise the worst of the worst or those ones that you don't anticipate could happen because they might. I'm relieved to hear you both say that because I recently hosted a discussion at an online uh, crisis conference and it was surprising to hear how many people who were in charge of the crises, crisis planning anyway, said that they were stopping doing crisis simulations and were instead focusing on senior members of their team sitting down to discuss the approach to take to crises rather than play it out. And apparently C-suite figures were responding better to that. And, you know, Gary mentioned the quote earlier from the golfer, Gary Player, who said, the more I practice, the luckier I get. And what I truly believe is to be lucky in a crisis you have to know what you need to do and the processes you need to follow. So I think you need to blend off those sit-down exercises with C-suite, but also proper simulations because they have huge value. It helps ingrain the behaviors that David talked about in a crisis and ensure that instinct is not overriding the processes that leaders follow uh, when a crisis hit. We all need to have some luck in a crisis, but that luck as Gary suggests, is often earned and we need to keep that front of mind. Right, that's us done for this week. Thanks very much to Karen and Gary as ever. Uh, Hopefully you've enjoyed listening to this episode of White Swan, the crisis podcast. Stay safe.
White Swan is brought to you by Hanover Communications and its global crisis network. To find out more, please visit hanovercoms.com. That's Hanover, H-A-N-O-V-E-R, comms, C-O-M-M-S dot com. Thank you.